everyone. Welcome back to the Judson Podcast. We are a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. And this week, the thing that interests us the most is food. We're thinking about our personal experience with food, um, how maybe our attitudes towards food have changed as we grew up or over the past years. Um, we're also thinking about food in the Bible. There are many biblical stories about food um, or that reference food or where food is used as a very powerful metaphor or something that builds community. So we're going to be talking about that as well. So a bit of the lighter stuff and of course, we'll go deep as well because we can't help ourselves. We always do that. <laughs> but to kick us off, uh, the question of the week is, what is your current favorite recipe and what does it say about you? This is David. My favorite recipe is something I actually haven't cooked much until this holiday season. Uh, basically, greens, like collard greens, cooked in like a broth from some sort of pork. I think I got some like ham, cooked it with onion, like in a broth for a couple hours. And then I put in greens for like another hour or something like that. I guess I would say it tasted real. It tasted like it was <laughs> like actually <laughs> someone else made it. <laughs> so David, I know when you make collard greens, I've seen recipes for like smoked pork, smoked pork neck, but I've also seen mm -hmm. recipes for like smoked turkey leg or smoked mm -hmm. turkey wings in like mm -hmm. soul food culture. Is there like a preference for like what is the best meat to add to your pot of greens? Like, is there a debate among old grannies? <laughs> I'm not privy to the old uh, <laughs> black grandma debate. <laughs> I think whatever it is, I would say the bone should be there <laughs> yeah. because you're going to get stuff from the bone. Whatever it is, the bone and the, all the, Whatever collagen or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like the tendons and all that. Mm, sounds good. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if I know. Is collard greens, is it the one that's like spinach? Yeah, pretty much-ish. I mean, it's. I think it's a little more bitter and it's a little more tough. So it takes longer to cook. Oh, yeah. I've had it before. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just displaying my ignorance here for everybody. Like, wait. <laughs> Connecticut collard greens. Maybe they have Connecticut collard greens. <laughs> no. A special flavor. What would uh, Connecticut collard greens be cooked with if they were a Connecticut collard green recipe? Like, what is the ubiquitous vegetable? I feel like people here eat spinach, probably. What's the meat? What's the meat that they Oh, no, you have with? to have dividers. So you have one section of your plate is the vegetable. Another section is the meat. Another section <laughs> See, that's is why, the roll. That's or the why rice. soul food is awesome. Black people realized that, like, oh, vegetables by itself tastes way too healthy. No one's gonna eat this, <laughs> so they just like slathered it in like ham grease for hours to make it taste better. Dude, I would eat. I would eat greens every day if they were slathered in pork grease. Who wouldn't? Munch it in Jenny's like, you can't even cook them together. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Scott. So all of my close friends know that I love cooking. It's true. Yeah, and that was like one of the things I was known for <laughs> yeah. in the Judson house back in our college days is I was the chef of our large group meals. But unfortunately, these days, I don't have as much time anymore to cook as much as I would like. So I find that the recipes I gravitate towards 
are recipes that can be made very quickly or without much hassle, you know, kind of like a set it and forget it type thing. So I cook a lot of Instant Pot these days, which David mentioned in one of our earliest episodes, if you don't know, an Instant Pot, it's mainly an electric pressure cooker, but you can use it as a slow cooker as well, as a rice cooker. Um, it's like a multifunction device. It's, it's a great way to cook quality recipes with as little amount of effort as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, one example I'll give you is I recently discovered that you can cook risotto in Instant Pot. If anyone knows the process of making risotto, it is very laborious. It's not just like rice. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like a rice stew, but basically it needs to be stirred constantly for like an hour. Oh, you can't you can't not stir that's a deal killer it. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like you have to stir it in order to get the appropriate texture of risotto and then you don't want to over thicken it either you, you don't want it to be too thin so it takes a lot of careful watching but i was shocked to find out that you can actually just throw everything into an instant pot and put it on the right amount of minutes and it comes out to a perfect texture how does that work with the water wow. i don't know it's magic that's always been my issue cooking carbs mm-hmm. that aren't like potatoes in the Instant Pot. It like gets too watery. But I haven't fully, fully been following the instructions though. Yeah. It's just finding the finding <laughs> a recipe that has the perfect ratios, you know? Mm-hmm. Instant Pot, you should sponsor us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Instant Pot. That's adult life. It's like yeah. adult life. What takes the least amount of effort? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, Hi guys, this is Jenny. My current favorite recipe, it's a tried and true for me. I went to an Ethiopian restaurant in college and similar to Scott, I started thinking eventually, oh, this stuff that's at the restaurant, it costs $15. Maybe I can make it myself at home. So I discovered red lentils, which if you don't know, they're unlike other lentils in that they kind of like they turn into more of um like almost creamy when they're cooked down. They don't just stay as little round lentils, but it makes this nice like creamy stew. But recently I've been making it. <laughs> it was a slow it was a slow journey, but I discovered that in a crock pot you can basically like you can just chuck all kinds of stuff in there. So I'll just buy bags of the frozen vegetables from Trader Joe's and I'll put in like a bag of peppers or a bag of Brussels sprouts or a bag of corn. (laughs) And I just use this special Ethiopian Berber curry powder. It's like curry powder, but it's hotter and it has some different spices in it. But that is my jam in the wintertime. I just love having 10 servings of this stuff frozen so that (laughs) like we were saying in as little effort as little time as possible i can just Mm -hmm. get a jar of this stew microwave it and have my delicious homemade ethiopian stew so good wait it's it's spicy yeah i mean it's like white person spicy it's not (laughs) that spicy (laughs) okay it could be so um digging further into our topic and You guys have started to touch on this a bit. I was thinking about my attitude towards food now as compared to when I was a kid. Because probably like most children, at least in our time, there were all kinds of food that I didn't like. I probably disliked most food. And if it was new, I probably didn't like it. So I was (laughs) curious of what foods you guys used to hate as a child that maybe you love now or maybe you want to make the argument that those foods were well worth hating. Mm. 
Yeah, when I grew up in Northeast Ohio, you know, I grew up in uh, basically a grocery store. Like we all grew up in the family business. And there wasn't like too much time to sit around the table for dinners because one of us was always working at the store. So our food was either divided between when my mom did have time to cook, Korean food or American fast food. And as a child with, you know, the palate of a child, obviously I preferred the fast food. (laughs) So, you know, I was all for the chicken McNuggets and the KFC. (laughs) And, you know, when you think about Korean food, like kimchi, it's just not a child's palate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't know what kimchi is, it is a spicy pickled cabbage. And it's very popular these days. You You can find it at pretty much any Whole Foods. But, you know, like Korean food is kind of spicy, a lot of vegetables, there's a lot of funky flavors. It's complex. Yeah, very complex. And it took me, you know, it wasn't until maybe I was in college that I realized, oh, I actually like kimchi now. Yay! I'm happy to say that my palate did mature quite a lot. <laughs> Although I can still eat KFC every day. <laughs> so you defend your childhood likes, but you also are glad that you branched out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When do you think it matured? Like, you know, I would always go out to Korean restaurants with my parents. And if you guys don't know, whenever you go to a Korean restaurant, they always give you these free appetizers to start your meal. It's called banjan, which is like little side dishes. So, you know, they give you like anywhere from like three to six little dishes. And there are all various vegetables that have been pickled or prepared. And they always give you kimchi as part of the sides. I reached a point where I realized, oh, I look forward to trying kimchi to see how this person or that place made it. Whoa! (laughs) Beginning of the end. Yeah. I remember learning that the reason American food tends to be less complex or like American food staples, like food developed in America, when you think of American food culture, is because it developed at a time when children and the family was really highly valued so that American food culture is based around children's tastes. So that's why it tends to be sweet Mm. (laughs) or salty. (laughs) Interesting. When was that? I think it was in the 50s that we really came to develop food culture. I forget exactly what year it was, but I remember reading that because all other cultures, the food is developed around what the adults like. And the kids just have to deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where are you, David? This is the foods that I... That you grew up with that you weren't into. Asparagus, Brussels sprouts, and okra. Wow. Clear. <laughs> Clear three. The the unholy trinity. Yes. <laughs> all green, all vegetables, <laughs> all disgusting. <laughs> And David, do you um, do you stand by that opinion? I stand by it. It never <laughs> oh! changed. But David, Brussels sprouts are in. You're supposed to like Brussels sprouts now. Nope. <laughs> My taste buds said no. <laughs> Even I have had grilled or... Yeah, like deep fried. <laughs> whatever they do to them now. I do concede that grilling them or whatever is better, but it's not good enough for me. And asparagus, <laughs> the taste was... The taste was weird. Okra is too slimy. If I have like jambalaya and there's okra, I'll just take out the okra. It's too slimy. As a full-grown adult, he stands by. (laughs) He will pick out the okra. Only thing that changed for me was 
I used to not like the taste of coffee in like maybe middle school. Mm-hmm. I tried it once and I didn't like it, but then I like it you know, now. So That's like a common one, right? Where kids don't like the taste of black coffee. Mm-hmm. I think it would be strange yeah. if a child enjoyed the taste of black coffee, right? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? And then there's the gateway drug for coffee, like, oh, coffee ice cream. And mm-hmm. then you're drinking coffee frappuccinos. Before you know it, you're drinking three cups of black coffee every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you need the coffee, even if it's bad coffee. <laughs> I think for me, growing up, oh, there were so many, so many times when I went to a restaurant and got chicken fingers. And for me now, as, you know, an adult, but also, like many millennials, a bit of a foodie, I just think I can't imagine going to a restaurant where you can get any food that you want that you couldn't get on a normal day and getting chicken fingers. (laughs) So the foods I didn't like were my mom used to make a tofu stir fry. You know, tofu is squishy and it also tasted like not white person food. So... It took me quite a while to come around. To even that. though it's literally white. Did. <laughs> yeah, even though it's white. <laughs> I knew it's it the was whitest Asian. food, but it's also not white food. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the things that I stand by are a lot of raw vegetables that people will put out for snacks. I don't understand how anybody likes them. It's not just a personal preference for me, but I am just amazed that anyone would ever want to eat raw broccoli. There are people out there who really, they might eat it with dip, but they really like raw broccoli. It tastes like nothing, but also the little green <laughs> green hat tastes like sour mm-hmm. and, and gross. Yeah, it reminds me of like, when you go to Whole Foods and they have like the cold pressed juices. Most of those juices are really good because they mix it with like fruits. And so those cold pressed juices have a sweetness to it and are really refreshing. But then there are cold pressed juices that are like 100% just vegetables, like zero sugars. It's like, why would anyone drink this? This this like literally (laughs) tastes like... Grass. Like it smells like grass. It tastes like grass. (laughs) There is no way you can define this as being delicious, but people drink it. It might be if you are really committed to eating a raw diet, like I'm not going to cook it, and you're really committed to eating vegetables, probably the fastest way of getting them down. (laughs) I mean, I can respect that. It's when people like try to pretend that it tastes good. It's like, come on, you're just lying to yourself. That it tastes good. Nope. (laughs) But of course, as I grew up, my taste changed. And it was it was a journey for me, you guys, because I went to two different colleges for undergrad. I transferred, and the first one was the University of Connecticut, which is also fairly white. I remember my family visiting, or maybe they were dropping me off, and we went to a Thai restaurant, and almost none of us could even eat our food because it was spicy, or what we thought was spicy then. Oh, really? Yeah. So I remember we had to give our food to my dad. And I think he had to share his food with us because he happened to get something that wasn't spicy. But now I can eat things like kimchi, which my dad is like, it would be way, way too spicy for him. So you've grown in your ability to eat spicy food. Yeah. It wasn't until I transferred and started attending Brown University that even in the dining hall, we had really good dining hall food. 
And they mm-hmm. would make an effort to have, you know, like Thai food or Middle Eastern food, all different kinds of food. And of course, having more diverse group of friends, we went out to different restaurants. Like we went to Ethiopian restaurant and we went to Asian restaurants. And <laughs> finally, I realized there was a, a whole new world out there. So I call it for me becoming <laughs> food woke because I went from just eating and liking white person food and liking things that were sweet or salty to enjoying these different flavors from different cultures. But it sounds like that kind of happened, like your taste broadened as well when you guys went to college. Mm-hmm. I mean, before college, it'd probably be the same soul food and chicken, rice, vegetable, whatever. And then, yeah, in college, that's probably the first time I think I had Indian food. Mm. I think. Yeah, me too. I don't think I had Korean food before college. I don't think I had Thai food before college. Bang used to get Indian food for events. Like if you went to an event. Yeah, what was that catering, restaurant called? Kebab and curry. Kebab yeah. and curry. Kebab like and that curry. was the food at the event. Everyone ate and enjoyed foods from different cultures. It was really great. Yeah, I would add to that. Not yeah. only was our area in college like really diverse but um, it was also the time when I when I learned how to cook. I realized like that was a great way to learn about a culture, you know, through its food. For instance, you know, the Providence area is very diverse, but one yeah. thing that's really hard to find is soul food. I mean, there's a couple of restaurants that I know about now, but they're kind of out of the way. And so for me to like experience soul food and and learn about the ingredients and the history behind it, I had to just like look for recipes and read about it on food blogs. And make my own soul food. You can also make soul food. (laughs) (laughs) As in Mm S-E-O-U-L for Seoul, South Korea. Mm -hmm. Just to explain the joke. (laughs) I think cooking for me was actually a money and access thing. Because we used to go to an Asian restaurant called Apsara all the time, and I love their pad thai. But because I didn't have a car and because I also felt like I couldn't afford to keep buying it, that was the first time, I think, that I cooked something that was really different from anything that I'd cooked before and trying to see if I could cook something that I'd seen at a restaurant. Like, oh, I bet I can do that. Did you have a hard time tracking down all the ingredients for pad thai? Oh, yes. So hard. Like tamarind? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't know where to find that. Do not know. (laughs) But it's empowering, too, because, you know, cooking, unlike playing an instrument, I forget who said it. If you can read, then you can cook. Mm. It's a cup of this. And maybe also if you can find the weird ingredients that you need for what you're cooking. But it's a cup of this. (laughs) It's, you know, this much of that. Cook it for this long. Stir it. And you can make something. Mm. And like, I kind of like what we're getting at when we're talking about looking for unique or rare ethnic ingredients. It's also cool because you get to learn more about your city. Because if you're going to make a really unique recipe that requires you to go to like the ethnic grocery stores, mm. it's always surprising to realize how many of them there actually are in your city. Yeah. I bet even in like a very suburban or rural area, there's more ethnic businesses than you think there are. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool to like find out about a community that's like right in your backyard through their food. Like what's some in Providence? 
One of the things that I'm cooking for the first time is like African foods. There's a thriving African community in Providence. Um, every time I try their food, it's very, well, I always love it, like West African food, mm. which is, you know, connected to American soul food because it's kind of like the mm-hmm. ancestor of American soul food. So there is like a lot of similarity and overlap. Like, for example, there's like this African dish that's similar to collards, which is, it's made from an African green. So the dish is called cassava leaf. Okay. It's like the same idea as like uh, soul food stews, right? You take like a ton of really fibrous greens and you just cook it down for a really long time until it's like soft and edible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I was surprised to find out, oh, there's actually a lot of African businesses around me with um, African grocery stores. Yeah. Yeah, Providence had like a lot of Liberians. Yeah, I think I heard it was like the second or third largest Liberian population in the United States. Wow. That makes me think about how... Food can be almost like a driver of awareness, I think. Because when I think about trekking out to a different culture's grocery store to find an ingredient for a new recipe, or going out to a new restaurant with your friends and discovering new food, you kind of develop this awareness of the world around you and of other people around you, which I think is really good. So I think that um, I'd like to transition us now into talking about Bible passages about food, now that we've <laughs> we've gotten to the deep meaning level. I think each of us picked out either a specific passage or a biblical theme relating to food that we want to kind of talk about, um, talk about what it means to us. Shall I go first? Mm-hmm. So my passage is from the Old Testament. I mentioned it in one of our recent podcasts, so you might remember it. <laughs> My passage is about the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So it's in 1 Kings 19. And it occurs right after Elijah has done a bunch of crazy things for God. Like God just gave him the power to call down fire from heaven, which is pretty cool. And then Elijah is traveling and he runs really, really quickly. He runs from one city to another, basically as fast as a horse could run between those two cities. So when I read this passage, you think, oh, Elijah, he must have been on cloud nine. You know, he just called down fire from heaven. He just outran a horse. (laughs) But Elijah, after doing both of those things, is totally and completely worn out. If I start in verse 4, it says, Elijah came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched Elijah and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And what I really love about this story is, you know, Elijah is one of the great names of the Old Testament. And I think it's easy to read about these Old Testament heroes and kind of think of them as being larger than life. But in this passage, we see that Elijah, even though God worked through him, he was just a regular guy. (laughs) 
he definitely wasn't perfect and he definitely wasn't impervious. He was, in this passage, he's weak. He's vulnerable. And then I think oftentimes in our Christianity, we tell ourselves to buck up, pull yourself together. God doesn't want you to be languishing. He wants you to pull yourself together and and keep doing his work. But that's not God's feeling about this. God sees that Elijah is completely and totally worn out. He doesn't yell at Elijah. (laughs) And he doesn't give him a verse. You know, God doesn't say, oh, remember this, this scripture verse that you memorized? Or, oh, how about you pray some? God comes and gives him food and water. Elijah was super, super hangry. And so he needed food. He needed water. He needed sleep. I think in our go, go, go mindset, we can overlook these things. And it wasn't just any food. It wasn't like a kale smoothie. It was bread. (laughs) Carbs are not evil. Okay, people? (laughs) I don't know, Scott. Maybe it was spinach bread. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you even had spinach in the Mediterranean. (laughs) But I love that, you know, God made us so that we have these physical needs. And we're not supposed to separate ourselves from our bodies. We have bodies that need taking care of. And it reminds us that we're not superheroes. We need time to rest and we need fuel. We need time to recover. And that there's something divine about about enjoying the simple pleasures of life. Mm -hmm. Like enjoying the creation that God gave us. Yeah. Too much puritanical ancestry there that was handed down. But I think it makes us humble and it keeps us reliant on God. Just to know that, you know, without eating and drinking... You might get really super hangry. <laughs> what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, the the hangry part I definitely resonate with because it's amazing how much food can change your entire disposition. Yeah. You know, God designed it that way. <laughs> like, food is good. We're meant to enjoy the abundance that's available to us. We should never, like, substitute good food for prayer, right? Obviously. But it's important to, like... You know, instead of compartmentalizing like we're so used to, it's important to see like good food as a part of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The passage I had was from First Corinthians eleven. I guess the idea behind it was in First Corinthians eleven. There's Paul's mentioning communion and how it was kind of a meal at that time. Usually in churches now, it's just kind of like a piece of bread or a cracker and then grape juice or wine. Yeah, but communion was was like a meal. There's something communal, you know, like a big feast or something like that. And people just being able to get a plate and eat. I guess it's social, but also specifically within Christianity, it's something that churches can practice outside the communion time in different, in different ways. Yeah. We lose the fact that communion back in the early church was actually quite an act of, of revolution because it wasn't just that people sat down to have a meal. It was that people sat down to have a meal who would never, ever sit down with one another. Yep. It was Gentiles sitting down with Jews. It was the rich, the elite, sitting down with the poor. And it was people who used to be tax collectors you know, sitting down with the conservatives, the Pharisees. The community in itself was a tearing down of social classes and man-made divisions. It's unfortunate that our liturgy has evolved to a point where we lose that original meaning. Hmm. 
Because even when you look at the chapter you mentioned, David, 1 Corinthians 11, like those words are spoken every Sunday for communion. Right. And even then, when we speak these words, we forget that the context of those words is, as it says in the, in the heading, it's correcting an abuse of the Lord's Supper. That's the context that Paul shares the communion liturgy. Right. Yeah, it says in verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So communion was meant to be a tearing down of those divisions. And uh, what was happening is people were sitting in their own groups, in their own circles. And Paul was saying, like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's not the point of this. (sighs) Remember that guy, Jesus? (laughs) And to bring in another example to this, in one of my other jobs in the past, I was a youth caseworker. And so I worked with um, kids in troubled families. And one thing I learned in that role was, you know, we talked about best practices for a family. How can a family who has tension between the children and the parents How do you get them to start healing and um, reconciling? And basically, like the research showed, the family that heals quickest is the family that eats together. Mm. If you look at like a troubled family, you know, what they do is someone will cook the food and then they'll make a plate for themselves and then they'll go off to their own bedrooms or to the living room to watch TV. And they don't actually sit together over the meal and talk. Yeah, so there's definitely something like universally spiritual about eating together. For my food scripture, I thought it would be cool to look at one of the resurrection stories. So this is from Luke chapter 24, and it's Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Those of you who are familiar with scripture know that what happened is a couple of Jesus' disciples were walking down a road going to a village named Emmaus, and Jesus actually just starts walking alongside of them. But they were kept from recognizing that it was Jesus. And so his disciples were talking about everything that happened and how they were crushed that Jesus was crucified. And then um, Jesus, you know, as an unrecognized stranger, talks to them and and tells them how all of these things have to happen in order to fulfill scripture. As the day is getting late, let me start reading from verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So I guess they went into an inn or someplace to get some food. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So I thought that was cool. Like, the moment that they recognized Jesus is, as we just discussed with David, is when they all sat down to break bread together. And I was thinking about how, you know, this is Jesus in his resurrected body. Like, if you think about how anyone else would tell this story, like a modern day Hollywood take, like the way anyone else would tell the story, it would be with like a miraculous feat of superpowers, right? Like, think about a Marvel movie. Like, yeah, right. Spider-Man just got his spider powers and now he's like crawling up the walls and he's swinging from the rooftops. Or Tony Stark just created a new Iron Man suit, and now he's, like, showing off all his gadgets. Right. (laughs) But that's not what we see. You know, Jesus in his immortal body is revealed not through some dazzling display, but through the very mundane. Mm -hmm. You know, which is just like the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. That the meaningful is revealed within the mundane. You know, it's just when eating together, just doing the most simple thing that we see the real Jesus. 
the deep truths come to us in the in the simplest ways. I love this story. I love that it's so in line with who Jesus is and what the gospel is about. And that eating is the simplest thing, but um, we can't take for granted how important it is to eat with other people. Talking exegetically, I know that eating is not the main point of this story, but it's a cool tangent point that when you eat with people, as David was saying, like you recognize people for who they really are. It's when you eat with people that you get to know someone's true self, that friendships really develop, that deep things are discussed. It's unfortunate that in the time of COVID, we can't do that. And I look forward to the day when we can all break bread again together. You guys, it's been a long time since we three have eaten together. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely one of the things that we took for granted. Being able to even meet up after work for drinks or have someone over your house for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are realizing how important that was in a new way. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't always remember the conversations I had with people, but I always remember, oh, I went out with David to that ramen place that one time. I always remember, like, when I went out with people and, like, broke bread with them. It always sticks with you. Mm-hmm. That's definitely when I think back to my time at Brown. I think of Apsara. <laughs> we go there so many times. And you're right. It's not that I specifically remember. I think a lot of times I was thinking, should I be here? Or should I be doing homework? But in retrospect, I'm so glad that I was there instead <laughs> of doing homework. So I don't remember the homework either. <laughs> I'm just glad that I was able to, you know, spend time with my friends gathered around a table eating really, really good food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pineapple fried rice <laughs> with Chinese sausage. <laughs> I actually also, I have a place in my heart for McDonald's because... I was raised just that McDonald's is bad, Burger King is bad, Wendy's, all that. It's just bad. You should never eat there. Yeah. (laughs) But a lot of us at different times in college or grad school were completely broke, completely and totally broke. But I like that McDonald's has a dollar menu. So if we spontaneously wanted to go out and get a late night dinner that almost always, even the brokest of us, could afford to get something off the dollar yeah. menu. Mm-hmm. Um, so college is also a time for me of coming around to saying, McDonald's, not that bad. <laughs> yeah. And I remember Scott would always, whenever the McRib was around, Scott's like, we got to go get the McRib. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny too, because like it also ties into my memories of my family. It's not that uh, McDonald's was special, obviously, but I remember whenever they had their filet fish deals, Right back in the day, it was like two filet fish for $2. <laughs> My parents, you know, they loved it. They were like, all right, it's time to get the filet fish <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like, how many memories of my parents are tied to um, food that's not good? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I cherish those memories. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what does that mean, Scott? <laughs> it means we were enthusiastic about living the American dream. <laughs> there you go. Whooshing sound effects. Whoosh. Whoosh. All right, guys. Welcome back to Those Millenniums. This is our segment where we talk about critiques towards our generation, the millennial generation. Well, we want to address those criticisms in this segment. For today's episode, because we're talking about food, 
We know that that's one of the big things about millennials is that we're accused of killing off so many industries. Home buyers. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, we are killing off the breakfast cereal industry, the big beer industry, American cheese, raisins, and canned tuna. <laughs> raisins. Just to name a few. Yeah, I mean, think about it. When's the last time you bought raisins? <laughs> True. Yeah. So let's address that. Obviously, we are. Our generation steers away from processed foods like American cheese, and we want higher quality ingredients. We want natural ingredients. We want things that are more sustainable, you know, which makes sense. But then some people think that is our generation too hedonistic? Are we too much into high quality and are just being spoiled? What do you guys think、mm-hmm. about that? We are seeing this、um, back to sustainable sourcing, which is. Good for people and good for the environment. I I love that it is more mindful eating. So instead of just thinking about oh what do I want to eat right now, it's it feels like it can be more selfless, you know. And so you're saying not just what what do I want to eat right now a burger. You're saying I care about the that the cow had a good life, and I care about the people that processed this food or the people that took care of the cow that. They are also having good lives. I think it's fine as long as you know we are not, I guess, judgmental towards people who don't have the financial means to buy as as ethically as they would wish.、Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm always going to try to buy beef that was ethically farmed, but you know, I realize that that's not, you know, especially big families they don't have the means for that. You know, our generation, most of us are single or just starting out our families, and so. We have a lot of financial means to be independent. What we're doing is fine as long as we're not self-righteous about it. <laughs> That's never good. I think, though, that there are creative ways and cost-saving ways sometimes too that you can eat ethically. Like if one meat is produced unethically, like the animals are really poorly treated, sometimes. You could buy a different kind of meat too, and sometimes that might even be cheaper. So sometimes thinking about substitutes、Hopefully. like that, yeah. Oh yeah, and going back to what we we're saying about like foods from different cultures, it's really cool to like look up recipes where people are using cuts of meat. Like for instance, you know, Chinese food has pig ears and pig's feet. Yeah, you're using the whole animal. Chicken gizzards or beef tongue. Like there's a lot of really delicious recipes that utilize cuts of meat. That would be wasted in the American markets. Yeah,、mm-hmm. I try to avoid eating steak because I know how bad it is for the environment. No, but I'll I'll buy a beef tongue if I find one because <laughs> they make awesome tacos. Oh yes, lengua, so good. Yeah.、Mm. To be honest, I had steak today. <laughs> <laughs> I I did actually kind of forget how much more water is used in the production of cows, right? Yeah. Not only that, but more carbon is wasted from buying steaks than from driving a car. Dang. Yeah. I don't know if I would not do it at all, but maybe just less. Yeah, just less. It's a place to start. Yeah. We're a bunch of good millennials encouraging each other to be <laughs> more millennial. <laughs> <laughs> so that list I stated. Do you guys like still eat any of those non-millennial foods, like breakfast cereal? <laughs> I had that yesterday, so yes. <laughs>
I bought myself a box of cereal in June for the first time so I'm about in, to say, in years. Nineteen eighty, no, right? <laughs> for the first time in years, I thought, "Oh, I like this kind of cereal. Maybe I'll eat it." But you know, I haven't opened the box still. <laughs> yeah, whenever I I try some of those cereals from my childhood. Like wow, this really is more sweet than I remember. It's a dessert. Oh yeah, I definitely don't eat the regular sugar yeah. cereals from Charles. Too sweet. Yeah, it's not what yeah. I want to have for breakfast. I mean, it tastes great, but for breakfast, I want you know some scrambled eggs and some oatmeal. I don't want some cookies, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think I'm like I have to eat this cereal. I think I'm gonna start eating it for dessert. Mmm, <laughs> that's a good idea. Pretty much, my only um, I don't know, non-millennial view on substitute foods is you don't have to trick me just tell me what it is (laughs) 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 if something is not macaroni and cheese because the cheese is not cheese and the macaroni is not macaroni (laughs) just tell me me on the flip side (laughs) like the mac and cheese it comes in like a bright orange powder (laughs) that you rehydrate and then put over your macaroni that's not really cheese either (laughs) fair enough fair enough which why i don't really Mm. use those either (laughs) although i will say there is no substitute for the flavor of american cheese like i understand the waste of wrapping each slice individually in plastic like that's unnecessary but whenever i've like had like burger recipes or sandwich recipes and i try to substitute something else than american cheese like nothing tastes like it oh scott no No, (laughs) I do not agree with you at all, even a little. I mean, that is true. Nothing tastes like it. But that is why I do not ever want to eat it. (laughs) I don't think American cheese is bad. Is it? Is it? Are people saying American cheese is bad? Yes. It's really processed. It was made during World War II when they were running low on food. (laughs) So it's not made the way that traditional cheeses are made, you know? Got it. I never thought of it as bad tasting. I just never thought of it as tasting good. <laughs> it's a neutral. <laughs> it's just kind of like water, the water of cheese. I don't know. I do have to say, though, <laughs> I don't want us to be 100% positive towards millennials. So I, I do have to say that although I love that millennials have created this more food-oriented culture – because it's based around what we were talking about before, community and spending time together. I do think it gets towards hedonism a lot of the time. Like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. That feels like Brooklyn to me, before coronavirus, Brooklyn, you know. DC. Or the West Village, you know, everybody going out for their brunch. It's like, this is it, man. Enjoy it. Mm. I can see that. I can concede that. I think in some ways, any generation, if they have the the variety of restaurants that we have now, <laughs> they would probably do it anyway. But yeah, I would still admit, yeah, I think so. I think Instagram can drive it too. I think my stomach also drives it. You want to put, especially, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to put on your Instagram like, oh, I went to this new amazing food place. Mm-hmm. So wrapping everything up, I feel like I want to ask, I don't know how to end this episode. <laughs> oh, um, how about Instagram, your favorite food, and tag Judson. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast! <laughs> 
So <laughs> to close this out, this is the big, deep question of the week is that I want to know, what is your Esau food? So Esau in the Old Testament, brother of Jacob, Jacob was cooking stew one day and his brother Esau came in really super hangry and said, hey man, give me some of that stew. I'll do anything for that stew. And his brother says, uh, will you sell me your birthright as being the firstborn? Which was a big deal back then. Like you got double the inheritance and stuff. And Esau's like, yeah, totally. I just want some soup. So in that story, Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. What is your bowl of stew? <laughs> mm, for me, that's easy. Even though I try to limit how much steak I eat these days because of the environment. Oh, no. <laughs> it would definitely, my Esau food would definitely be Japanese A5 Wagyu, um, which if you guys don't know, when it comes to Wagyu steaks, they're all scored based off of how well marbled the fat is. The more marbling it has, the more delicious and amazing the flavor of the steak will be. So like A5 rating is like the highest rating you can get, which costs like $200. What? Yeah, for wow. one steak. I think for me, it would probably be lobster. Mm. Northeast. Yeah. I think lobster <laughs> is extra you know, special because you only, or at least I only eat it maybe once or twice a year. It's usually also part of a really special moment, you know, on a vacation. We did it for my friend's birthday party and it was Cajun spiced lobster. Mm. But really, as long as the lobster is cooked correctly. Yeah, it's hard to mess up lobster. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. And I love that I'm being semi-terrified by my food as I'm eating it because my favorite is to eat a whole lobster. <laughs> It's like, oh, this is scary, but it tastes really good. <laughs> it's one of those things I'm surprised is a white food because it's so messy to eat a whole lobster. Yeah. It's like there's juices flying everywhere. That's what I like about <laughs> it. It's super interactive. It's an experience. Yeah. yeah. How about you, David? I'm, I'm going to narrow this down as I talk. Soul food, which is, I guess... Macaroni, cheese, collard greens, and fried chicken with hot sauce. Mm. Or a good curry, maybe something spicier than butter chicken with really good quality meat. And the third, I think, is going to be a Thai curry. Mm. Maybe like a spicy green curry, something like that. I don't know. So what you're saying is really easy for you to sell your birthright. Because <laughs> you have like... There are three ways... <laughs> You have options if you want to buy David's birthright. Yeah. You know? Many. <laughs> Many options to be sold. I think I'm going to go for maybe a masala with really, really good quality goat with some yogurt on the side. Wow. That sounds good. And then some tea after. <laughs> okay. You really thought about this. And some buttery garlic naan to dip it into, along with the rice. <laughs> I think you just made all our listeners very hungry. And that's that's going to be it. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to the Judson Podcast. If you have a favorite food or recipe that you would like to share, please leave a comment on our social media. We are on Instagram or Twitter at Judson Podcast. We'd love to hear back from you. And we promise to try all of your recipes.
<laughs> Promise. And until next time, stay safe. Bye.